Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Who knew equities can go down as well as up as we head into an uncertain election and companies continue their struggle with the coronavirus? This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. The White House was pleased by the strong jobs numbers this week, but there is still weakness under the headline numbers of 1.37 million jobs added. We asked Austin Goolsbee, professor of economics at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, what the numbers really show us about the economy. We've had a nice rebound of the what were the temporary layoffs. So again, if you look at this report, you've got strong job growth, especially strong in temporary census employment from the government. That was 300 and something thousand. And then the two major sectors of job growth are retail and leisure and hospitality, where you saw the giant increases of temporary layoffs, those people are mostly now all the way back or pretty close to back. The question is for the permanent layoffs, can we get them back to work? And if we recover to something like half where we were before, uh, that's not really great. And so I think on the political side, we're gonna be in this dynamic where representatives of the Trump administration are clearly going to say, well, look, we're having strong months. And I think other analysts are going to look at it and say, yeah, but the strength is getting weaker every month and we're not even getting remotely close to, to where we were even before the, before the COVID recession began. 
So, Austin, in your estimation, what is it going to take to get us to the goal we all share, Republicans and Democrats alike, of really getting back to or close to full employment? Is it a matter of that fiscal stimulus that seems to be hung up in Congress? Is it a matter of really getting our arms around the coronavirus? Yeah, look, I think everything has to do with that virus. As I've said from the beginning, the virus is the boss and the first rule of virus economics is that the only way to fix the economics is to get control of the virus. You've seen that in other countries where they've now gotten, they've slowed the spread of the virus dramatically more than we have, and their economies are rebounding actually faster than, than ours is. So hopefully we can get control of that, and if we do, I think that we, we could get on a faster path back to, to where we were and growing like we were before, if we don't, look, we need relief, uh, but we shouldn't kid ourselves that relief and rescue payments, trying to keep people from being evicted, uh, is going to fix the economy. It's not. I mean, we got we to get the engine going again. If we, if we don't, uh, and we all want to really beat this virus, but if we don't get the vaccine, if we don't get to a world where we can go back to something like normal again, do we need to lock down? Uh, because that's something that certainly the Republicans last week accused Vice President Biden of saying that basically we should lock down the country. What is his view on that? Can we keep going with the economy, even uh, with social distancing and masks and washing our hands and things, without actually defeating the virus? I, I don't speak for the vice president. Uh, you know, you, know, you, you would want to ask them what, the, what their view is. I think other countries have shown us that you don't need to have a vaccine. There's no vaccine in Germany. There's no vaccine in Australia. It's not in New Zealand. It's not in Taiwan. It's not in a whole bunch of countries where they have been able through public health measures, whether it's masks, whether it's social distancing, whether it's a lot of testing so that you can get the people that are contagious out of the economy so you don't have to shut down everyone. I don't think you have to have universal lockdowns. Uh, you just have to be smart about it. You gotta follow what works. And thus far, we're mostly not following what works, and we got a lot of mixed messages coming out. Well, we'll address that quite specifically. If it's a matter of doing it better, being smarter in addressing a virus while it's with us, what would a President Biden do, which would be materially different from what President Trump has done? President Biden has laid out a, at least 20-step detailed plan on the public health side of how you slow the rate of spread uh, of the virus. And... I'm not an epidemiologist or public health expert. I will refer everyone to those, uh, to those documents. But the center of the, of the federal response has got to be a clear, consistent approach coming from the very top, from the president himself, who has clearly at many points downgraded the, what he perceives as the danger of this virus and said it's going to disappear by a miracle, initially said, oh, we have virtually no cases. It's going to go to none. It's, it's under lockdown. Don't worry about it. You don't need to wear masks. He himself won't wear masks. I think that kind of approach got hundreds of thousands of people killed in this country that did not need to die. That's what the public health experts are saying, that if we had moved earlier with, consistent, with a consistent approach from the federal government, and done the testing at the beginning, we would be in a lot better spot. But it's not too late. That's what I don't understand. We, if we start more significant testing and more significant mask wearing in public and, and, and in these places where, where 
people are in crowded conditions, we space them out. We can get the rate of spread of this virus down below one in their mathematical terminology. And in countries where they've done that, which is almost every rich country in the world, they've been able to bring their economies back. That was Austin Goolsbee, former chairman of the National Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama, and now an advisor to the 2020 Biden-Harris campaign. Coming up, we've lost all those jobs because of the coronavirus and the shutdowns it triggered. Dr. Steve Corwin of New York Presbyterian has fought the virus successfully, but says we're not out of the woods yet. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. First, it was New York and New Jersey, then California and Texas. And now the coronavirus crisis has moved on to the Midwest. The question is, what comes next? And what can we do to make sure we can get the economy going again safely? Which is what we asked Dr. Steve Corwin, CEO of New York Presbyterian, the largest hospital group in the New York area. Well, I think the moving average across the country is moving down, and that, that is good news. I think, as we've talked about before, David, as you start to open, you're going to titrate infections. You have to be uh, capable of sort of dealing with those outbreaks, which is why testing becomes so important and contact tracing to try to keep a lid on this thing uh, until we're capable of treating it and having a vaccine for it. So the moving average going down is positive. Some of these hot spots obviously are a problem. Uh, the opening of colleges, the, the, the opening of schools presents a challenge. Indoor dining presents a challenge. Opening theaters presents a challenge. And we have to be uh, mindful of that so that we can scale it back if it looks like we're having uh, a, an outbreak in a particular area. In New York, we're down to about 2% of our COVID peak, uh, which is very comforting. Uh, but now we're going to look at uh, New York City schools reopening. Uh, there's going to be a push for more indoor venues as the weather gets colder. We're going to have influenza start in the fall. Uh, so I think seeing that moving average go down and seeing the, the daily infections go down, 
below the 10,000 uh, number is what Dr. Fauci has said would be comforting if we could get to that by October. So, so a lot of challenges. Are we up to meeting the challenges? How are we doing on this? Because it looks like we may have to manage this disease for a while before there's this magical cure called a vaccine. Can't count on that. Can we reopen our economy? Can we reopen our schools to some extent prudently? I hope that we can, David. I think that we missed the boat a little, quite frankly, in terms of not tamping down the infection number. I think we had the the debate over masks, social distancing. I, I don't think that helped us as a country. We politicized it, which was unfortunate. Uh, but I think that maintenance of masks, maintenance of social distancing, uh, getting the infection number down will allow us to cautiously reopen the economy uh, as we're doing. Look, we have to reopen the economy. We can't still, we can't stay still forever, uh, but you want to do it in as prudent a manner as possible. Uh, you read in the Financial Times today, as well as other uh, venues, that Germany thinks that they're having a V-shaped recovery. Part of that is because they were able to control the pandemic to a greater extent than, than, than we have. Um, so I think that the two go hand in glove. Are we making good progress on the testing front? You mentioned testing, and it seems like almost every day we have a new report, like Abbott Labs has something out that takes 15 minutes and doesn't cost very much money. Are we making substantial progress on testing? Not as much as I would like. We still have issues with reagent shortages and things of that nature, so we can't do as much testing as we would like. But let's just talk about the point-of-care testing for, for, for a moment. Um, some of the point-of-care tests can do a test every 15 minutes. That's four tests an hour. Um, uh, the machines that we have uh, made by Cepheid, Roche, and others, uh, we can do batch testing where we can do thousands of tests a day. So if we had the reagents for it uh, with, these, with these machines, we can do turnaround in less than 24 hours, and we can get these things done quickly. Uh, the public ought to be mindful that point-of-care testing sounds great, but ultimately you want to be able to do a high volume of tests on a frequent basis. You want a low enough level of infection so that you know, if you identify an infection, you can do contact tracing and then test the contact traces in a three- to five-day period to make sure they're not infected. That's the key. I thought it was unfortunate that the CDC came out with guidelines for less testing. You need more testing, um, and I don't think there's much dispute, at least in the scientific community and the people I've been speaking to about that. Well, I wonder about that. I mean, you're a doctor. You head up one of the major hospitals in the country. You can sort of sift through this. For, for those of us out here in the real world, how do we figure out what the truth is? Because as you say, CDC came out and said, you don't need to test people who are asymptomatic. We had a flurry of people, experts come out and say, no, that's not right at all. Are they undermining their own credibility to some extent? And then we have this convalescent plasma thing where the government says it's just fine. Now we hear NIH says, well, I'm not sure we know. I think it was very unfortunate, and it does undermine uh, the credibility of, of uh, the FDA and the CDC. The FDA mistake was uh, egregious. It should never have happened. You're talking about a subset of patients, and you're talking about a misrepresentation of the statistics, even according to the people who, who did the study. Um, and that then... Uh, so what are the consequences of that? Then that gets everyone to say, I want convalescent plasma, as opposed to let's study this more rigorously and, and see whether it works or not. And we got into that same conundrum with hydroxychloroquine. So I think that was very unfortunate. 
I think the CDC, um, you know, uh, quite frankly, that was unfortunate as well. The, the, the simple answer is we need to rigorously test various therapies to see if they work. We need to do the rigorous testing on the phase three of the vaccine trials to make sure that if we're going to inoculate and mass inoculate that that works. And there can't be any appearance that this is politicized, either for the president's benefit or the pre- or, or the benefit of, of Mr. Biden. It's got to be that we're in this together right. uh, and that we're trying to, to improve the public health. So I don't think we're in a good place in terms of that. You've got now uh, it, this is a Democrat Republican right. issue and it should not be. Dr. Corwin, you, of course, are a physician and you were chief of medicine before you were CEO, but you are CEO now and you've got a really big company, a business to run. You've said before that uh, your company may lose as much as a billion dollars out of operating income because of the coronavirus this year. How are you doing financially? And in particular, there was a hundred billion dollars appropriated in the CARES Act to go to hospitals. Did you see some of that money? We'll lose uh, in the two to three hundred million dollar range through June. And that's uh, far less than we would have lost had we not received the CARES money. We've advocated that the Medicare advances for all hospitals around the country, rural and otherwise, be converted into grants. That would help as well. We still are anticipating a loss anywhere between $700 million and a $1 billion towards the end of the year. Uh, we do see our volumes coming back. That's been very encouraging. Uh, the, uh, the fact that, again, the volumes are coming back is completely coincident with the fact that people feel safer. Um, that being said, I think that, um, you know, we're looking uh, for a, a 20 that will be rough uh, and we're hoping that 21 will be better. And we're looking that uh, that by 22 will be uh, out of the worst of it from from a from a perspective of a major institution. That was Dr. Steve Corwin, CEO of New York Presbyterian. Coming up, a tsunami hit the news media over the last few years, taking much of the newspaper industry with it. We talked with the man who led the New York Times not just to survive, but to thrive, Mark Thompson, its CEO through a remarkable and a remarkably challenging time. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. For all the difficulties experienced by most of the traditional newspaper business, the New York Times over the past eight years has managed to embrace the future. And we asked its CEO, Mark Thompson, how he went about doing it. What we decided to do, there were four revenue streams when when I arrived at the company, still are today. Print advertising, which once had been more than 80% of the total revenue of the company had been print advertising. Print subscription, uh, digital advertising and digital subscription. And really, I, my kind of BDI narrowed in on, on digital subscription as the, as the revenue stream we should really grow and indeed had to grow because ultimately, for different reasons, all of the other revenue streams, it seemed to me, were in trouble potentially and ultimately might even disappear. So we doubled down on the very simple idea of great journalism packaged effectively in good digital products, which establish a very close relationship with people who are prepared to pay to get that journalism and that becoming really the the bedrock of the entire future of the company. And to do that, 
we invested in our newsroom. We actually built the newsroom. We've got 250 more journalists now than, than, than when I walked into the building. And we also got smart about digital product. We hired hundreds of software engineers and data scientists, machine learning people, and graphic designers and videographers, and, and really worked on the digital product. And, and we've ended up with a kind of virtuous circle where I think the content is as rich and, and broad as it's ever been. It's much more effectively packaged up in products, and, and people are flocking to buy the products as, as, as new subscribers. So, Mark, you describe it as simple, but it was far from conventional wisdom when you took over. I mean, most newspaper people, as you and I both know, in the United States had said, look, we made the mistake early on of making this free on the internet. There's no way we can charge with it. With the possible exception of the Financial Times, maybe the Wall Street Journal, because it's a specially business publication. So, what you did may have been simple, but it was not what most people thought would work. That's true of our industry. But if you step back, I mean, Reed Hastings was was thinking the same thought about, about high-quality TV in, in relation to Netflix. Daniel Ek and co. at Spotify were thinking the same about music, that there was a way of getting great entertainment or great music to the world's public, and enough people out there would pay for it to make a great business. And really, all we're really doing, I think we're part of a, a broader trend towards direct uh, digital subscription relationships with people who want really good stuff. And that's an, that's an entire sector which is growing very rapidly. And in a way, it's a little bit like the moment when cable TV arrived in the US. And suddenly there was a, cho- there was a choice of something beyond regular broadcast TV television. And I think that although it's true that the broadcast model is, is happening to broadcast TV right now is, is post-growth and it's going to be very difficult to sustain even its current level. Um, it turns out these other forms of getting TV and music and news could grow. There was once a really big market in, in paid news in America, and it wasn't just the New York Times. It was local newspapers. It was metros. Uh, it was magazines and all that. People paid billions and billions of dollars uh, as subscribers and buying buying these products from newsstands. There's no reason why that market can't be recaptured, it well, seems to me. Uh, but how would that happen, Mark, as a practical matter? Because when you came in, the New York Times still had a very robust newsroom, directed toward print largely, but a very robust newsroom. A lot of newspapers across the country, these are regional as well as local papers, really have had to cut back so far. They've let those newsrooms go. Is it possible at this point to rebuild that? Can your model apply beyond the New York Times, I guess? is what I'm asking. And the answer is because so few people have even tried it, I don't think we know. But but to me, I, I mean, I think there's one basic big caveat, which is this is a kind of horse and buggy to automobile moment. And that requires capital. You have to risk some money. You have to invest to, to make the change. But assuming someone wants to invest, I don't see at all why if you rehire your journalists, rebuild that newsroom, start doing great reporting, and start getting smart about how you get it to the public, well, you can't really build a new business. I think the mistake made was thinking that you could kind of eke your way to the digital future without putting any fresh money in. And no one could do that. Nobody could take a, to, 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 could take a, a kind of horse carriage factory and turn it into a car com- company without vast fresh investment. And right. this is one of those periods in media, 
which is very capital intensive. It requires lots of money. But for people who are prepared to put the money in, I think there are great businesses to be built. But the other thing we saw was people take a look at Facebook and Google and say they're so massive. Their audience is so large. We have no choice but to go through them. We have to hitch our wagon to them, even though they will have the direct relationship with our subscriber, our customer. I mean, even New York Times flirted with that for a time. So is it possible for you to do this directly? I mean, you have a direct relation to the subscriber. And and we we believe that although um, uh, uh, digital social media, Facebook and the rest of it, Google search, and all of these platforms are really important in people finding our content, hearing about the times and and making sure our our journalism is really influential, that we really needed a kind of trail of breadcrumbs from these other platforms back to the mothership, back to the New York Times experience. That was Mark Thompson, outgoing CEO of the New York Times Company. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. It was a week of ups and downs and sometimes just plain moving sideways. To wrap it up for us, we welcome now our special contributor and former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, we had a lot of information on the stock market toward the end of the week. I mean, on the early week, it was going up. The latter part of the week, it really sold off quite a bit. How much of this is signal and how much of this is noise, to borrow from Nate Silver? You know, David... uh Bob Rubin famously told everybody in the Clinton White House, markets go up, markets go down. I think it's a mistake always to make judgments about deep and profound things, even about the future of markets from how they behave over a period of uh, several days. So I'd be very surprised if the events of the last couple days are historically uh, memorable. My uh, my son, who's in his mid-twenties, um, sent me a note in the middle of the day saying, uh, hell of a correction, Dad. And I wrote back, by the standards of your young life. <laughs> um, and uh, he had the good grace to write back, uh, fair enough. Um, so I, I don't know whether where markets are. I I have come to think that uh, the idea that many had early on, 
how can the markets be so strong in the midst of a COVID shock so big? I think that idea that treats the divergence as overwhelming evidence that markets are wrong is misguided. You would expect that uh, when interest rates were reduced as much as they have, when the Fed is as freely providing liquidity, when action is shifting towards uh, technology companies, you'd expect to see a variety of the things we've seen. Are they overdone? Uh, are the movements overdone? What fraction of that has been corrected in the last couple of days? Each investor will have to make uh, their own uh, judgment. But just as every time it starts to snow, it's not a blizzard, though it might be. Uh, every time you have a significant market move, it's not the beginning of something uh, profound. So. I think people should be worried about whether we're going to carry on an honest election in the United States. They should be worried about whether we're going to have a competent uh, effort, which in many ways we haven't so far, to contain COVID. They should be worried about whether we're going to find a way of making our economy function so it helps uh, middle class uh, people and a large fraction of the population shares in any prosperity that's uh, created. I think the fundamentals are the more important things uh, to be worried about than uh, this particular uh, market fluctuation, which I think is unlikely to be uh, long remembered. Larry, there's a lot of talk this week as there was a sell-off led by big tech that this might look like 2000. But as you pointed out to me, it's very different in part because of what you just pointed out, which is the central bank liquidity being infused into the marketplace, as well as the fact that the big tech companies are making a lot of money, unlike some of those tech high flyers back in 2000. Yeah, I, I don't think you were not, you were talking about pets.com <laughs> uh, in 2000. You were talking about an era when People raised uh, money before they had their first dollar of profits, before they had their first dollar of revenues, before they had their first uh, coherent uh, plan. Uh, I think when you're talking about the largest companies in uh, the marketplace, which is what the tech companies uh, now are, you're looking at something very different than what we were looking at in 2000. And if you look at price earnings ratios, they're not in the same kind of stratospheric place that the tech sector price earnings ratios were in uh, in uh, the year 2000. Now, look, that doesn't mean there isn't going to be a substantial correction of uh, some sort. Uh, no one no one can know that, and I certainly wouldn't want to claim that. But I think that those who have been saying it's all a big bubble and are declaring themselves vindicated right now are premature in their declarations of victory. Larry, one of the things that the markets don't appear to be waiting for is a fiscal stimulus package, that so-called fourth round. Otherwise, they'd be waiting for Godot because it keeps going on another week this week without getting it. At the same time, we had a report of the CBO about the level of deficit, which is going to go over 100% of GDP for the first time since World War II. Do the Republicans up on Capitol Hill, who are concerned about this, have a point? You know, David, um, 
what I learned from the CBO actually made me a little less concerned about a fiscal crisis and made me a little more focused on providing fiscal support for the economy than I was before. We all know that the United States ran a big deficit in 2020. We all know that the debt to GDP ratio, which was around 80% at the beginning of the year, is going to rise to around 100% because of uh, that big deficit and because of the declining GDP. The thing I didn't have a bead on till the CBO report was what was the path going to be out for a decade? And what I learned from the CBO report is while the debt to GDP ratio is projected to go up slowly over the next two or three years, from 2023 to 2030, on current law and on current projections, the debt to GDP ratio isn't exploding. It isn't rising. Uh, very rapidly at all. It's basically uh, flat. And what that says to me is that we're in a relatively stable situation. Now, then you can ask the question, is it a dangerous uh, situation? Well, there, I think the way you have to look at a debt is to look at the interest flows that it generates. And in fact, we're spending less on interest um, as a share of GDP than we have historically on average over the last decades. And if you do what economists would tend to say you should do, which is look at uh, the real interest cost of the debt, that is the cost net of uh, inflation, real interest rates are now negative, which makes it much, much easier uh, to carry uh, debt. So what I learned from the CBO is not the current deficit figures. They're in the papers every day. They're in the Treasury accounts. Right. What I look to the CBO for every uh, six months is right. an update on the long-run debt path. And yep. that was actually a relatively serene um, uh, out, uh, projection. So I feel better now than I did then. But is that because of the Fed, Larry, to put it simply? Because if the real issue is the interest cost, right now we're approaching the zero bound in interest costs because of the Fed, are we essentially financing that, that, that debt? Is this really a form of modern monetary theory? I don't think that's quite the right way to think about it, David. I, I think that if most economists will tell you that, yes, the Fed can set the interest rate this year, or maybe the Fed can set the interest rate next year. But the interest rate on long-term debt, the so-called five-year, five-year interest rate, the interest rate that's baked into markets for borrowing that starts five years from now and continues for five years after that, that's not something that the Fed can immediately uh, control. And it's remarkably low. I think it's fundamental factors about savings and investment that are determining the low level of interest rates. And the Fed is basically tracking that in its effort to keep uh, the economy stable. And this is the secular stagnation idea that you yeah. and I have talked about on this uh, show or the low neutral interest rate right. that people in the Federal Reserve System have been talking about. Right. I think they're fundamental factors that mean we're going to have lower interest rates and right. therefore can carry larger debts. 
yeah. than we did historically. Yes, fascinating. Thank you so much. It's always a treat to talk with you, Larry. That is Wall Street Week. Special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard coming on a rather remarkable week. A lot of volatility in the marketplace, but maybe not telling us very much in the end. Finally, one more thought. A different kind of Labor Day. In the United States, we celebrate Labor Day this weekend, traditionally marking the end of summer and back to school. But originally, Labor Day had a bit more edge to it than picnics and beach parties. Starting locally here in New York City in 1882, it became a national holiday as part of President Grover Cleveland's efforts to calm labor strife that had led to deaths in 1894. This year, we celebrate Labor Day with millions upon millions of people out of work. With back to school very much up in the air for millions of children, with warnings about the need to wear masks and keep our distance from one another. And with racial strife in cities around the country triggered by police shootings. But despite all that we're dealing with, happy Labor Day wherever you are and however you can celebrate it safely. Let's hope for a holiday next year if we can go back to worrying only about getting a sunburn and eating too much. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.